check mints check bible and notes check bring it on um that brentany cook i think we should keep her um thank you by the way where is brentany is she even in here no children's there you go. Um, all right. In our study of Galatians, we've seen Paul defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone against the doctrine of justification by faith plus works. And as we've seen, there is a world of difference between the two. Ultimately, it's the difference between knowing Christ as Savior and knowing him as judge. Paul warns those who rely on the law that every man who accepts circumcision, that is, everyone who thinks law-keeping contributes to salvation, is obligated to keep the whole law. And since we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, trusting in our works leaves us standing before Christ as our judge. Back in chapter 3, Paul said it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. So standing before Christ as judge would be terrifying. Terrifying. Those who believe in justification by faith plus works will get there, will stand before Jesus, hoping he will be impressed by how well they did, how obedient they were, how much holier they were than their neighbors. But he won't be. Jesus is impressed with absolute moral perfection. So if you think salvation is for sale and the currency is your imperfect law keeping, your imperfect obedience, you don't have a mental category for the terror you will experience when you stand before Jesus Christ. That's the really bad news. But there is great news. It does not have to be that way. See, salvation is for sale. Do you realize that? Salvation can be purchased, just not by us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us. He bought. He purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In your place, as your substitute, Christ obeyed the law, and he has purchased your salvation. He paid for it. It was his works, his doing. And in your place as your substitute, Christ bore your sin, your condemnation, and your punishment. That is good news. So you can stand before Christ as your judge or as your savior. We've already talked about how we'll stand before Christ as our judge. We rely on our works, our law keeping. But how can we stand before him as our savior? How can we have Christ as our substitute who earns our acceptance with God for us? 
Well, that comes through faith alone, through trusting that when Jesus lived, died, and rose, he accomplished for you everything God requires of you. That's when you get, and that's how you get, Jesus as Savior. And I pray you do. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, that that is too easy, that's too simple. Friend, that's why it's called the gospel. It means good news. That's the message of the first four chapters of Galatians. Justification happens by faith alone, only faith. We have nothing we contribute to it except our sin. And I pray you believe that. But the gospel of justification by faith alone, the real gospel that is, raises a question, doesn't it? If I'm justified by faith alone, that is, if my works don't contribute toward my salvation, if my obedience isn't me doing my part to be saved, then what is it? Does it matter how I live? Galatians 5 and 6 make it clear that Paul knows the gospel raises exactly that question. So let's pick back up in Galatians 5. Last week we focused on verses 16 through 21. This morning we'll focus more heavily on verses 22 to 26. But I think it's helpful to keep a little broader context in view. So we'll read beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In this text, Paul safeguards the Galatians against two wrong ways of viewing obedience. And we began talking about them last week. He builds two guardrails to keep them, to keep us, 
from veering off the cliffs of licentiousness or legalism. On one side of the road is the cliff of licentiousness. A couple of weeks ago, we read Paul's comment that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. To keep us from driving off the cliff of licentiousness, Paul says that faith produces love. Faith produces works. A few verses later, he exhorts them saying, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's clear that while we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Saving faith doesn't yield an increase in sin, it yields an increase in love. It yields an increase in fruit. How? By the Spirit. Paul says God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And, says Paul in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And in verse 24, he tells us that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So in Christ, you don't just get justification, you get transformation, you get new desires, you get the desires of the Holy Spirit. And that keeps us from veering off the cliff of licentiousness or even wanting to. But licentiousness isn't the only danger. The other is the cliff of legalism. The Judaizers, those Paul is addressing here in Galatians, who teach justification by faith plus works, that faith in Jesus gets us started, but our law-keeping finishes the job, they have driven off the cliff of legalism. That's why Paul, in chapter 1, calls for their condemnation. He prays for the Lord to destroy them, to take them out. He says, let them be anathema. Now, most of us know that we're not under the lists of Old Testament laws. That's why we're not running around offering animal sacrifices or requiring people to be circumcised. We know better than that. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're out of the wo- that we're out of the woods of legalism. See, there's a danger of trading one system of earning, one system of works righteousness, for another. To those who know salvation can't be earned by obeying Old Testament commands, do you think you'll earn salvation by obeying New Testament ones? Have you exchanged works righteousness through the law? for works righteousness through avoiding the works of the spirit and bearing the fruit of the spirit or avoiding the works of the flesh and bearing the fruit of the spirit okay you may say i don't have to obey the law to be saved i just need to bear fruit to be saved that is a new law that you are not obligated to bear and the attempt to do so reveals that you do not know christ That's an unbearable burden of legalism. It's the slavery of legalism from which Christ has freed us. That is the cliff of legalism. 
Now notice with me the two ways that Paul keeps us from driving off this cliff of legalism. First, in Christ, you aren't condemned for your disobedience. We noted last week that right after Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16, he reminds us just a couple of verses later that if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. So when you fail in your efforts at walking by the Spirit, don't forget the first chapters of Galatians. Remember that you aren't justified by your works. Your works don't earn your favor with God. Christ's works earn your favor with God. And through faith in him, you are not condemned. So when you sin, don't despair. Confess your sin to God and to a trusted believer. Repent. Thank God for his grace to you in Jesus and resubmit yourself to the Holy Spirit. So to keep us from veering off the cliff of legalism, Paul reminds us that our obedience didn't earn our salvation and that our disobedience doesn't unearn it. If you trust that Christ earned your acceptance with God for you, then your disobedience, your failure to walk by the Spirit, does not condemn you. It points you back to your need for Jesus. It reminds us that we need him, that he became a curse for us, and that he was condemned for our disobedience. It drives us back to worship. So in Christ, you aren't condemned for your disobedience. And that's the first way Paul keeps us from driving off the cliff of legalism. Here's the second. In Christ, you aren't credited for your obedience. So you're not condemned for your disobedience and you aren't credited for your obedience. We noted last week that in Galatians 5, 16 to 26, Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit. He refers to those who, quote, live by the Spirit in Galatians 5, 25, to keep in step with the Spirit, same verse, and are being led by the Spirit, verse 18. So four times in these 11 verses, Paul connects our obedience to the Holy Spirit. And in these same 11 verses, there are three other references to the Holy Spirit. So in 11 verses that contrast the Christian life with life outside of Christ, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit seven times. Our obedience is the Spirit's work. So we're not surprised when Paul identifies the nine virtues in Galatians 5.22 as the fruit of the Spirit. And notice that unlike the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't talk about externals. So there's no checklist of actions we can distort into a means of earning God's favor. Instead, Paul identifies nine Spirit-wrought heart attitudes. And notice also that this ninefold fruit is produced by the Spirit. It's His work. So as we bear the fruit that He produces, He gets the credit. Our fruit bearing isn't us doing our part or getting into God's good graces. It's not us improving our standing with God. It's the Holy Spirit giving us His desires and producing in us His fruit. It's grace. Fruit bearing doesn't earn your right standing with God. It's the spirit produced display that you already have it. 
So in Christ, you aren't credited for your obedience. You're credited with Christ's obedience. So these nine heart attitudes and the life that flows from them are the fruit, not the root of salvation. And that reminder is the second way Paul keeps us from driving off the cliff of legalism. Now let's notice the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit, which stands in stark contrast to the works of the flesh. First, notice that the fruit is singular. There are not nine fruits of the Spirit. These nine virtues comprise the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is bringing to life all of these virtues in the hearts of his people. First on the list is love. And I don't think that's accidental. You can hear Jesus saying that the greatest commandment is to love God and people. And earlier in this chapter, Paul called our attention back to that, saying the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the chief virtue. It is arguably the encompassing virtue. All others fall under it. And what is love? In John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love is the heart attitude that delights to make unfathomably deep sacrifices for the benefit of others in a way that reflects Jesus' sacrifice for us. The second virtue is joy. In Hebrews 12, too, we're told that Jesus made the sacrifice that he made for us for the joy set before him. It was a forward-looking joy. It was a joy that was not in this world or even of this world. Christian joy, Christian happiness, is not anchored in the moment. It's anchored in God. It's anchored in hope. We're told to rejoice in the Lord and when you read Galatians and realize that justification, our salvation, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, it's not hard to imagine that a Christian virtue is joy. How can't it be? The third is peace. As is the case with joy, the peace Paul has in mind is not anchored in present circumstances. It's anchored in the peace we have with God through faith in Christ. God ended our war against him, not by wiping us out. How about that? God ended our war against him, not by wiping us out, but by bringing us into relationship with him, by bringing us into his family, seating us at his table. He has established that kind of peace. And we get to live in that kind of peace. 
Moreover, we get to put that kind of peace on display in our relationships with other people. The fourth is patience. Patience is the quality of not being easily offended. It's long-suffering. And that's exactly the way God is with us, and that's exactly the way God has always been. And so as we are patient, we put on display, we mimic to others God's infinite long-suffering with us. We will never outpatience God. No matter how bothersome or difficult someone else is to you, your bearing with them is substantially easier than it would be for God to bear it with you. And he does it perfectly. He is so long-suffering. His patience toward his people is literally inexhaustible. The fifth is kindness. Kindness carries connotations of joyful service and generosity. The Greek word for kindness shares its root with the word for slave, which brings to mind the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. We find in Romans 2.4 that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness, his service, his sacrifice woos, and so should ours. Sixth is goodness. This word is only used four times in the New Testament, but it carries connotations of benevolence and generosity. In some ways, there's a lot of overlap with kindness. It describes God's disposition toward us, and it should describe our disposition toward others. We should be marked by benevolence, by giving, by generosity. Seventh is faithfulness. The idea of faithfulness is trustworthiness, and it's not compartmentalized. Uh, there is no, it doesn't have in mind a particular type of trustworthiness. It's holistic. The faithful person is trustworthy across the board. He's faithful in doctrine and practice, just like Jesus. Eighth is gentleness. This is not weakness. Sometimes you hear the word gentle or meek and you think, oh, it's kind of a, you know, a cowering little weakling. That is not gentleness at all. Gentleness is strength under control. You think about Jesus. Can you imagine marching the hill of Calvary, bearing a cross? He 
he noted that he could have called legions of angels. It wasn't that he didn't have power. He had all the power. And yet, he humbled himself. That's the picture of gentleness. It's strength under control. And so for us, we don't arrogantly use our power to force our will on others. We, we humble ourselves. We place ourselves beneath other people to do what is good for them, to use our strength for their benefit and not our own exaltation. Last on the list is self-control. A distant cousin of mine pastors a word of faith church, and I'm using the word church there so loosely. When I was a new convert, I attended a, quote, revival service there in which the preacher rolled around on the floor, on the stage, behind the pulpit, belly laughing like an insane person. I had no idea what was going on, what I was watching, but I knew there was something wrong with it. I knew that whatever was coming out of that pulpit should have sounded a lot like this. And there was none of the scripture in that. He just rolled and continued laughing. There was no sermon. There was no Bible verse. He just rolled around and continued laughing. I later learned that he was allegedly drunk or slain in the spirit. In other words, the spirit so controlled him that he was unable to control himself. And that's absolutely foreign to the Bible. That's not at all the way the Spirit works. The Spirit grants self-control. The Christian is not mastered by his own desires. He exercises mastery over them. That's the idea of self-control. And against such things as these, there is no law. Why? Because they're great. They're great. Right? These are exactly the heart attitudes that if you could draw it up, if you could draw up the way other people would treat you, it would sound exactly like that. You would want these heart attitudes to dictate that. That's how you would draw it up. That's why there is, you can't find laws against this stuff. They are great. Unfortunately, we don't bear them perfectly. I wish I did. I really do. I wish I did. One day I will. One day you will. But we don't yet. And if Paul expected us, or if Paul had anticipated that we would bear fruit perfectly at conversion, we'd be saved and boom, we're perfected, I would suggest to you that he wouldn't have written this letter. 
The fact that it or the entire rest of the Bible exists is evidence that fruit bearing is a gradual process. And in verse 24, we get some insight into the process. Paul says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're in Christ, you are not a passive participant who kicks back waiting for God to zap you with spiritual growth. In Galatians, earlier in, our, in, in Galatians here, it is in chapter 1, no, sorry, chapter 2, 21. No, I'm wrong. Uh, 1. Where is that? Where does he say, somebody tell me, where does he say I've been crucified with Christ? Boom, thank you. There we go. Very good. Um, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is the passive tense. I have been crucified with Christ. There was a crucifixion that happened to me. He uses a different tense of the word here. In verse 24, you can see that it is, in fact, the Christian who is doing the crucifying or who has done the crucifying. And so you say, wait a minute. Haven't you been saying that my fruit bearing is the work of the Spirit? Yes. But again, we're dealing with the heart here. Grace is opposed to a heart of earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to the heart that says, I'll bear fruit to earn God's favor. Grace is not opposed to the heart that says, I love Christ and hate sin. So by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, I have crucified my flesh. And by that same grace and power, I'm going to keep my flesh there until it dies. This speaks to what John Owen called the mortification of the flesh. In his great book by that same title, John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Again, that does not mean that you can earn your way into God's favor by killing the sin in your life. It does mean that if you're not busy killing sin and are instead habitually coddling it, enjoying it and treasuring it, you don't know Jesus and your sin is going to kill you. So bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not in your own power as an attempt to earn God's favor, but in the power of the Spirit as an expression of your love for your Savior. Rest in justification by faith alone in Christ alone and seek to put sin to death. Let me pray. God, thank you for not just delivering us from the penalty of sin, but for also delivering us from the power of sin so that we don't have to keep doing the things 
that lead to our destruction, that lead to misery, that bring about ruin and chaos. God, thank you that in your spirit we can do the things that are great. We can live in the ways that we would want people to live toward us in love and in joy and peace and in patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, you have given us your spirit to bring about that fruit in our lives. God, I praise you for that. Lord, you said that we will be known by our love for one another. And God, I pray that you will make that the case. Make our fruit bearing here at Sylvania, at Bethel, at Southern Oaks, at South Spring, at Calvary, at Grace, at Redeemer Presbyterian, at Tyler Prez, at Colonial Hills, at Green Acres. God, I pray that in all of your churches, in the church, that we will be known by our love for you that comes out in in love for each other. God, thank you for the gift of Christ and for salvation in him. Lord, what an unbelievable blessing that when we didn't have the currency to purchase salvation, Jesus did and he got it done, and he gave it to us as a gift. That is unreal. Lord, you are so good. We love you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and turn to hymn 275, I Surrender All. Oh, to Jesus I surrender all, to Him I freely give. I will never love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all.
Good morning, uh, I'm Roger Conaway, chair of the Sylvania Mission Team, and I have the privilege this morning to introduce Grace Fitzgerald, who's going on a trip. And while I do that, could the elders and mission team members come down uh, as we pray over her this morning? Um, Grace, uh, the Lord has led Grace to a short-term mission opportunity for serving overseas. Uh, she will leave this Friday, uh, for a two-week trip to North Africa with the International Missions Board. And she will be using her skills as an occupational therapy assistant to provide education for local therapists working with children diagnosed with cerebral palsy. For safety purposes, she is asked to keep the details of the specific location private. And we can say it is a Muslim people group which is 99.5% unreached. So she will be a bright light with other team members in that area. Uh, we have found the value of prayer uh, over church members who've traveled to the Balkans, to Bangkok, uh, and other places as they've started on their trip. And, uh, and if the Lord prompts you uh, to remember grace, these next two weeks to pray for her, her safety, and so forth. So let's pray now. If y'all uh, gather around. Lord, we, we thank you for uh, your working in our hearts to prompt us to reach uh, people that don't know you. And Lord, I pray that uh, you will fill grace with the knowledge of your will about our trip, these people, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
that she would walk in a manner worthy of you with her team members, pleasing you fully and bearing fruit in every good work. Lord, we ask that according to the riches of your glory that you strengthen her in her inner person just with power through your Holy Spirit and dwell in her heart by faith. Lord, protect her health as she travels alone a long distance. Protect her relationships with other people there on the field. And may your light shine brightler, brightly in her as she uh, ministers and bring her back safely. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, two more matters. Uh, one, Lydia Skinner has surgery scheduled for Thursday. Uh, we're, I want to pray for her corporately, okay? Uh, two, we're going to uh, ordain our two new elders. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer for Lydia, and then I'll have the elders come up, and I'll have Chad and Elliot come up, and, and uh, we'll begin the ordination, okay? All right, bow your heads with me, please. Father in heaven, we, we cling to you this morning, and we come to you knowing that you are the great healer and knowing that you love your people. And we ask this morning for your special blessing and your healing hand as the great physician on your daughter and our sister, Lydia Skinner. We pray for her family, that their spirits may be buoyed during this time. We pray for her physicians, that their hands would be guided, that they would be given wisdom. And we pray for Lydia. Lord, we know that you love her, and every promise you have for your people we claim for her this morning. And we ask that you would heal her. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for that. Uh, Chad and Elliot, would you all mind coming up here? I'm going to have you all come up first. And uh, if you will, just stand on either side of the, whatever that is, the table, and just face the congregation for me. I'm going to read something, and then I've got a couple of questions. And then after the, question, after the three questions, we'll have the other elders come up, lay hands on you, and, and pray over you. Uh, Elders are set apart for a ministry of watchful and responsible care for the welfare and order of the church. They are to be shepherds of the flock and are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as it has been taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. They have oversight of all members, including one another, and are charged with equipping everyone with the teaching of God's word. They are to ensure the scriptures are rightly proclaimed and taught, and that the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly administered. They are to not only teach, but also pray for the church and edify its members through consolation, encouragement, and counsel. They are to bear up God's people in their pain and weakness, 
and celebrate their joys with them. They are to hold and trust all matters confided in them. And they are to encourage the church to rest and to persevere in God's promises. Elders are to pray continually for the church and are to know the scriptures, which are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So gentlemen, uh, do you believe that you are called by our Lord to this office as elder? Okay. Uh, you say it loud so everybody like really knows. <laughs> we want it to be clear. Uh, will you be diligent in your study of the Holy Scriptures and pray that the Spirit would guide you in rightly dividing the Word of God? Will you pray for God's people and seek to lead them by your own example in faithful service and in holy living? All right, if the other elders would come up and, and lay hands on Chad and Elliot, and I'll lead us in prayer over them. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have provided faithful and gifted men to serve as elders. As these men assume their new office and responsibilities, we pray that you fill them with your spirit, endow them with wisdom, and grant them strength. We ask that you make them faithful workers in your vineyard. We pray that you would work through them, that your church may grow in every spiritual grace, that we would grow in faith for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. Help us, your people, accept them gladly, encourage them in this office, and respect them for the sake of your precious Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you all. Do we have a benediction? We do. All right, stand with me, please. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Thank you all.